from uh, about 15 years on up, uh, a great deal of my thoughts were uh, basically unshareable. We are all evil in some form or another. Yes, I am not 100%, but I am evil. My mother was a, a sick, angry, hungry, and very sad woman. I hated her, but I wanted to love my mother. This is Serial Killing, a podcast. Hello again, and welcome to Serial Killing, a podcast. This is Alyssa Carroll, and I am your host and the creator of at Serial underscore Killing on Instagram, where we go through the life stories of serial killers to see if we might catch a glimpse of why they displayed their famous vile and disturbing behaviors. This week's podcast will be on Clementine Barnabet, thought to be the first African-American female serial killer. Clementine Barnabet was born in 1894 in St. Martinsville, Louisiana. The year after Clementine's birth, Booker T. Washington delivered his Atlanta Compromise Address at the Cotton States and International Exposition in Georgia. This agreement stated that Southern blacks would work and submit to white political rule, while Southern whites guaranteed that blacks would receive a basic education and due process in the law but it also said that blacks would not demand the right to vote, they would not retaliate against racist behavior, and in fact, would tolerate segregation and discrimination. The price? Free basic education, which, by the way, would be limited to vocational and industrial training. That's just embarrassing. Now, W.E.B. Dubois was the first African-American to be awarded a Ph.D. by Harvard University. Elsewhere in the world, a military alliance was established between the French Third Republic and the Russian Empire. William Kennedy Dixon received a patent for motion picture films in the United States. The first battery-operated telephone switchboard was also introduced. Coca-Cola is finally sold in bottles for the first time. The Manchester City Football Club was formed in England. The Tower Bridge in London opened for traffic. The Republic of Hawaii is proclaimed. And New Zealand enacted the world's first minimum wage law. But on a scary note, the bubonic plague broke out in Hong Kong and... By the end of that year, over 2,500 citizens died. So this was the atmosphere that Clementine was born into. Now her parents were Raymond Barnabet and Nina Porter. And there really isn't much known about Clementine's childhood. Her father was a local petty criminal and a sharecropper. He was also not faithful to his wife. He had a lot of mistresses. He was known to have a violent temper and be physically abusive to his family. 
When Clementine was in her early teens, the family, herself, her father Raymond, mother Nina, and brother Zephyrin, moved into Lafayette, Louisiana, and lived in a rundown part of town. Their neighbors described them as, quote, filthy, shifty, degenerate, unquote. They also became very heavily involved in a cult known as the Church of Sacrifice. So, this cult was an equal opportunity cult. There were the exact same number of male to female followers. Both groups worked together equally. The males nor the females shared the brunt of any of the formalities. This group's core belief was that riches and immortality could be easily obtained through what? You guessed it, human sacrifice. Now, at the tender age of 17, legend has it that she became at least one of the leaders of this cult. And that's literally all we have for her childhood. That's not much. So let's kind of look at how the African-American people down in southern Louisiana typically lived and what they dealt with during that time. So looking at just straight up 1900, an alarming number of black Americans were being lynched. The Great Migration showed that black Americans were moving north, seeking work and political opportunities elsewhere. And can you blame them? In the South, they had to agree to be okay with the continued treatment as less than human, treated like shit to get a very basic education. But we also see that the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, or NAACP, was forming, and they were all about those civil rights. So, we know that her family was most likely very poor, Her father was a small-time criminal, and he worked in farming. The living conditions and homes for blacks at the time were built out of, like, scrap materials left over from major builds of fancy homes or whatever, and so their homes made out of these scrap materials were just not built to last. There was just, oh, so much injustice, and they basically just had to deal with it. Some articles I read suggest that Clementine was mentally ill, but with what? I couldn't tell you. There just wasn't enough description of any symptoms or typical behavior to even make any kind of guess. She was aware of her father's infidelity and obviously his cruelty. She experienced abuse at his hands and watched her brother and mother receive the same. We can all imagine that this would have obviously negatively impacted her. And once she joined this cult, she very quickly became the priestess, high ranking among its members. That sense of control and power for a teenager who has been basically living under the thumb of her father would have made her feel good, quite powerful. So, while she was leading this cult that believed in human sacrifice, it is believed that Clementine's first murder was a family of four in nearby Rain, Louisiana. 
You see, there were like these clusters of little towns that ran along the Southern Pacific Railroad line and it wouldn't be difficult to quietly travel between them. This first family of four was Edna and her three children in 1909. I actually found a news article about this incident and though the race of the victims was not specified, I do believe that it was a black family. The newspaper clippings said, quote, 200 armed men with bloodhounds are searching tonight for the, word I'm not going to say, who murdered Miss Edna Opelousas and her three children at Rain, Louisiana, late this afternoon. His capture and lynching is regarded as a matter of a few hours. The word I'm not going to say, assaulted Miss Opelousas before he killed her and her children. She is the daughter of the famous Louisiana family for which the town of Opelousas is named. Two, word I'm not going to say, women have been arrested as being possible witnesses and it is feared they will be lynched too, unquote. Word I'm not going to say is the N-word and I'm not going to say it, Sorry. Now, I realize the article says that it was a man, but we'll get into that in a bit. Edna and her children were murdered with an axe, their bodies hacked at, dismembered and decapitated. Then the bodies laid together, sort of on display when they were found. Then two years went by, but police found another entire family slain. Walter Byers, his wife, and their small son were all dead in the same room. Their skulls had been split completely open, and the bedsheet beneath them was soaked in blood. The police found that the front door was locked from the inside, so they believed the perpetrator would have had to come through a back window. They knew the family had been killed with an axe, because the murderer had left it bloodied and propped up next to a bucket filled with the victim's blood. The local newspaper stated it was, quote, the most brutal murder in the history of this section, unquote. But the next murder was only a month later. The Andrus family, a father and mother, and their two children were murdered in the same fashion. Only the father and the mother had been propped and positioned beside the bed, kneeling as if in prayer. The bloody axe left at the foot of their bed. As police investigated, it was determined that these murders were connected and, quote, the work of the same terrible monster, unquote. A month later, a family of five were murdered in the same manner in Texas. Now, remember the railroad ran along this area. So, the authorities worked on any leads that they could, but keep in mind, there were no real forensics at this time. No DNA, no luminol, no tire tracks with specific vehicle tread, no buttered voice Keith Morrison to tell us anything we might have missed. None of that. But then there was a break in the case. 
A woman went to a friend and began complaining about her lover and how she thought he might have had something to do with these murders. Who was her lover, you ask? None other than Clementine's father, Raymond. So, they go grab Raymond and arrest him on suspicion of murder and they question his family. So, his wife, but mostly Clementine and Zephyrin, all testified during his trial that he had left town that particular night for unknown reasons, air quotes, and returned home late with blood and brain matter on his clothing and shoes. His son said that when his father got home, he was actually bragging about the murders that he had committed and stated that the victims deserved it. One of their cult's sayings, I might add. The cult believed that the murdered people deserved it because they refused to obey messages from God. So, Clementine and Zephyrin both said that they were completely terrified of their father and that it was better for everyone if Raymond, who was a lifelong criminal, was in jail. Needless to say, he was found guilty and put in prison, but while awaiting his fate, only a month later, another murder occurred. Norbert Randall, his wife, his three children, and his nephew were all murdered in Lafayette in the same manner. Each person had been hit behind the right ear with the back of the axe. However, Norbert was shot in the head. The horrific crime scene was discovered by a daughter who had just happened to not be home at the time. So, I mean, obviously it became immediately apparent that the killer was still on the loose. The citizens of Lafayette were beginning to panic. Many citizens got together at the Good Hope Baptist Church to have a meeting reminding other citizens to sleep with doors and windows locked as well as a weapon beside their bed. And then someone came forward stating they saw a young woman creeping around the Randall home, but everyone knew immediately who they were referring to, Clementine. The police went to their residence and found one of her dresses, this blue and white dress, and it was covered in blood and brain matter. The latch to their front door was also smeared with quite a lot of blood. At this point, both Clementine and her brother were arrested. Now, Zephyrin was able to provide an alibi for the night of the most recent murders, but not Clementine. The home was searched, and there they found several articles of clothing with an alarming amount of blood on them in Clementine's closet. She, of course, completely denied any involvement with the murders, but eventually she caved and confessed. At first, she said that she killed with accomplices from her cult because they wanted to, you know, try out a voodoo charm that they believed would protect them. Then she changed her story and blamed her brother, stating he had killed the people. But she eventually testified that her father had nothing to do with it and thus saving him from being executed. I mean, even though he was a mean person, he didn't kill them. 
So here's kind of a long quote from a newspaper talking about this case. Quote, With screams of hysterical laughter, the girl rocked back and forth in the witness chair, her great eyes rolling into the back of her head, barely any pupils showing. Amidst sharp commands from the court and quick questioning of the prosecutor, the woman told of how, because the Randall family had refused to obey church orders, she had crept upon their cabin late on Sunday night with a keen-edged axe concealed in the folds of her cotton wrapper. She told of how after she had thrown open the door of the tiny cabin, she crept upon the sleeping husband and wife, and before either could arouse, had split their skulls in twain with her death-dealing implement. She told how the four children on the floor started to cry out and how stealthily tread she approached their trundle beds, and swinging her axe killed two with one blow, and then lay about her with quick swings, hacking the bodies of the two remaining children until they were scattered in bits about the room. As she completed the awful tale, she rocked to and fro, and then said, And judge, that ain't all either. Unquote. She nearly boasted about how she, you know, caressed the bodies after she had chopped them into pieces, but she insisted she only killed the children so that they wouldn't have to be orphans. Now, an interesting twist to all of this is that Norbert Randall was the brother-in-law of Alexander Andrus, and both families had, at the very least, attended that church of sacrifice, which, by the way, is an offshoot of the Christ-sanctified Holy Church, if you've heard of that. The murders took place on Sunday nights after the worshipers had worked themselves into a religious frenzy. So Clementine had not acted alone. Some of the victims had been accomplices as well. One of the crime scenes had this written on the wall in blood. Quote, When he maketh the inquisition for blood, he forgetteth not the cry of the humble. Unquote. From the Bible. It was discovered that after the murders, the murderers would then do a sacrificial ceremony with chants and rituals, which satisfied the teachings of the church. It supposedly served to eliminate clues as to who killed and why. And it get, I guess it kind of worked. The police really never found very many clues. Eventually, Clementine admitted to murdering 35 people in total. So at the ripe old age of 18 years old, she was sentenced to life in prison at Angola State Penitentiary. In July 1913, she did attempt to escape prison and she fled out into the swamps, but she was caught. Then, according to a report from prison, a, quote, procedure was done to her that supposedly, quote, restored her to a, quote, normal condition. I'm assuming it would be some form of a lobotomy, but it didn't specifically say. Then, and you're not going to believe this, guys, in August of 1923, 29-year-old Clementine Barnabet walked out of prison a free woman and disappeared. Poof. 
Now, there is a story that in 1985, a Louisiana woman visited her 103-year-old grandmother and that her grandmother told her the story of Clementine. Then after the grandmother passed away, the woman came across a portrait of her young grandmother, who was supposed to be, supposedly, the spitting image of Clementine. And it is reasonable to assume that she would have changed her identity to stay under the radar. But there's really no telling if that woman was Clementine or not. I really wish there was more information about Clementine's background and what mental illness they may have suspected her having. I really wish there was more information, period. Why would she think, after pointing the finger at her father, that she could get away with continuing to kill? It doesn't make sense to me. But what do you think? Leave me a comment on Instagram at serial underscore killing or YouTube under the same name of this podcast. You can visit my website at serialkilling.squarespace.com and also consider sponsoring the podcast. It takes a lot of time to make these, but I love it. And thank you so much for listening. I appreciate every one of you as I know you could be listening to anyone else, but you chose me. Thanks. Have a great day.